Thank you for tuning in to the RPC Sermon Series podcast. You're about to hear a live sermon, which was recorded at our 11 a.m. contemporary service. We are thrilled to share it with you. Thank you for listening. As Carrie mentioned this morning, we are continuing our sermon series on counterfeit gods. Kind of the idea is that while fewer and fewer people are officially affiliating with a particular religion, we are not a less religious people, but rather people are choosing to worship other things. And we have looked at various things all throughout this sermon series. This morning, we're going to look at the counterfeit God of food. So that should be very easy. I'm so glad this was the one I was assigned. No problem. (laughs) So we're going to, in order to do that, we're going to look at the first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. We're going to look at the eighth chapter. And before we do that, though, let's turn to God in prayer. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for today. We give you thanks for this time to sit at your feet, Lord, to be at your presence and to focus on you. So, Lord, we pray that you would be present now, that you would, that the words that are read are your words, the words that are spoken are your words, the words that are heard are your words. And may this encounter with you be so powerful that we cannot walk away unchanged. In your holy name we pray, amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, first eight verses, listen now for the word of the Lord. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols... We know that all all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I am going to start this morning with a bit of a confession. I have not told my children this story. I have not told my husband this story, so you're now learning of this. And I'm a little afraid now that they're going to know, and let's face it, now that Jeff is going to know this story, I'm going to regret ever mentioning it all. But nonetheless, it's a really interesting story about whether food is appropriate or not. When I was in seminary, I worked at a church in Buckhead, and if you are unfamiliar with Atlanta, Buckhead is a really affluent area. There were a lot of people in the church that would ask me to house sit or babysit when they were out of town. So one weekend, I'm babysitting for a family while the parents were out of town. And the girl picked up this dish of what appeared to be these very beautiful, round, white chocolate candies. And she offers me one. Want a piece of candy? 
Yes, I do. So I eat it. It's good. She starts laughing and she holds the dish out and she says, you can have as many as you want. A smarter woman would have been suspicious. But I am not one to turn down a yummy treat, so I grab a whole handful and pop them all in my mouth and eat them up. Now the girl cannot contain herself. She's in a full-on guffaw. I mean, tears coming down her face. She is laughing so hard. Finally, I said, what are you laughing at? Oh, she cries out. You just ate all of our dog treats. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I was a little embarrassed. But more than that, I was irritated that rich people's dogs eat better than poor seminary students. <laughs> ah. It's an appropriate story because while Paul is not dealing with the same issue, he's still dealing with the issue of what are, what's appropriate to eat and what's not appropriate to eat. In this community in Corinth that Paul's writing to, the problem is that the, the, the animals would be sacrificed in a pagan ritual, right? So the, the pagans would take the animals in, they would sacrifice them in their temples, and then the leftover meat would be sold in the market. So the question is, can the Christians buy the meat in the market? Now, Corinth is known for being a pagan town. It would have been really difficult for a faithful Christian person to live in a manner that's completely separate from the world around them. It would have been difficult to buy appropriate meat at an appropriate price if they didn't buy the meat from the market. So the question is, what would a faithful Christian do in a place like this? Honestly, it's the same question that we are asking ourselves many, many years later. What is a Christian to do in a culture that idolizes food? Now, food is by no means all bad. Matter of fact, when we look at our faith, we have these deeply faithful ties to, to food in Christianity. Scripture describes Jesus himself as being food. It says Jesus is bread. It talks over and over again about how often food has been important within our faith and within our lives. And matter of fact, our most pure celebration of our faith is in the sacrament of communion. We eat food together. Certainly food is important to our faith, but there is no doubt that our culture has made food an idol. Think about it. We now live in a time when we self-describe ourselves as foodies. What we eat and how we view what we eat, our relationship with food, there's an ever-increasing focus on it in America. The way we talk about food, the amount we talk about food continues to demonstrate our obsession with it. Think Rachel Ray, Sonny Anderson, Wolfgang Puck, and even the beloved Joanna Gaines. Everybody is talking about food all the time. There are TV channels simply devoted to food. And that doesn't even count the various choices that we're making in our own lives and in our own homes. When I was growing up, the only question there was about food was, can we talk my dad into real Rice Krispies? Or once again, will we settle for generic crispy rice? But now... I think eating cereal has fallen out of vogue, but should one still eat cereal? 
You have to decide, are you going gluten-free, grain-free, or organic? And what are you going to put on that cereal? Are you going to get grass-fed cow's milk or organic milk or almond milk? And don't even get me started on where we're going to buy all of this food. A grocery store, a farmer's market, a specialty food store, or maybe you're going to just give up and have it delivered to your house. Whatever decisions you make, I feel real confident that you feel strongly about those decisions. I would venture to say we are so passionate about the decisions we make about food that food has become formational to our very identity. I spent a long time trying to figure out what in the world one would say in a sermon on the idolatry of food. Certainly in my own personal life, this has been a constant conversation, certainly with my own self, but with people that I love very much. It's tricky. It's tricky, right? Because on one hand, food is so beautiful. We, we use food to celebrate the people that we love. We use food to mark significant events. It's the way that we care for people that are hurting. We know that we are grateful because food gives us life. And it's important to have healthy and ethical eating practices. But at the same time, the reality is that we eat too much. Obesity is a real problem. 40% of adults in America are considered obese. But we can't spend too much time thinking about that end of the spectrum because the truth is that we also live in a culture where depriving yourself of food is a common practice. And I don't mean as a prayer fast to draw ourselves closer to God, but instead we call it a diet or a cleanse and we promote the health benefits. Either way, either way, whether you are indulging in food too often or restricting food too much, our culture tells us that our food behavior is a moral indicator of our value. Our food we are now in a place where our food determines whether we are good or whether we are bad. David Zalls, the man who wrote the book Seculosity, where Jeff has pulled the idea for this sermon series, and in his book he says, perhaps it should come as no surprise that, given the value we now place on food, meals have come to function for many of us as a daily and sometimes hourly drama of discipline, deprivation, and self-satisfaction, or conversely, indulgence and guilt. His point is that when we make food our idol, diet is no longer about what we put in our mouths. Instead, it becomes a score sheet of personal and social righteousness. It's the way that we measure our own value, and quite frankly, it's the way we measure other people's value. Multiple times this week, I lost myself down rabbit holes with all the examples the internet has for us of people who have determined their value and I would offer social status by what they are eating and what they're not, by what is good and what is bad. I found a girl named Freely the Banana Girl. She is an internet sensation because she eats 51 bananas a day. It's a lot of bananas. She follows a raw food diet, and judging by her pictures online, she often feels eating bananas is best done in a bikini. 
I also read about the vegan community. The vegan community turned on this blogger named Raw Vanna. I don't think that's the name her parents gave her, but she's a blogger named Raw Vanna, and the vegan community turned on her because she was busted with a piece of fish on her plate. The vegans were not kind to Raw Vanna. Uh, also, someone this week, we were talking about uh, how people declare their values how, and it lines up with what they eat. And, and someone this week says, well, how do you know when someone is on Whole30? Whole30 is a diet where you eat whole foods. They're, they're healthy and pure. I said, I don't know. How do you know? And she said, oh, don't worry. They'll tell you. <laughs> but, but seriously, there are other ways that this this take assigning our value to what we eat or not eat, it, go, it continues to go on to the extreme. I found that the National Association of Eating Disorders has declared a new condition called orthoexia nervosa. It's a, con a condition where one is completely obsessed, I would offer religious, about eating healthy food, eliminating whole food groups completely from their diet in order to eat completely healthy, completely pure. And while we're here talking about assigning value, on a bit of a side note, I can't move on without mentioning that not only do we assign value based on what people eat or don't eat, but we also assign it based on weight. We have the most tumultuous relationship with the word fat. And let me tell you, I believe that fat shaming is an epidemic in our country. And I don't ever believe that it is helpful or appropriate to bring shame or embarrassment on somebody because of their weight. And scripture is very clear that one's value is not associated with their weight. But here's the thing, with all this religiousness about our diet, regardless of where you fall on the eating spectrum, here's the thing. Eating becomes so stressful and so emotionally consuming that personal relationships will come under pressure and they will suffer. From the beginning of time, people have bonded over a meal. They, they break bread together as a way of connecting. So when we are paying more attention to the food we eat or the food that we need to hide that we eat, it's difficult for us to enjoy time with the people we love. It's difficult to connect with these people that God has put in our lives. We become so fixated on our relationship with food that we lose sight of our relationship with God and our relationship with others. There is a theologian named Paul Tillich, and he says, idolatry, the definition of idolatry, is the elevation of a preliminary concern to ultimacy. That means when we have elevated so much of our focus on food that our relationships are suffering, that we have now declared food to be our God. In this passage in 1 Corinthians this morning, Paul's warning the Corinthians of that very thing. They've, begun, they've gotten so obsessed with the food and trying to decide what's the good food to eat and what's the bad food to avoid and how can they be the good Christians and make sure they're not the bad Christians, that they're now arguing with one another about whether or not they're gonna eat the food. And then in all this arguing, they forget what it is that brings them together, what forms them into that community in the first place. And so then Paul tells them at the end of chapter eight, he said, look, 
If food is the cause for people to fall away from God, then I will never eat meat because I don't wanna be the reason that someone falls from God. Paul is reminding the Corinthians, Paul is reminding us that we are not called to be in relationship with food. We are called to be in relationship with God and with one another. That that is where we put our time and energy and that food comes in as a tool to enrich and add beauty to that focus on God. Food does not define who we are. Food does not define our value. Honestly, though, it's easy to see how food has become a religion for us. It's really tempting to worship food. Food gives us control. We have control over our bodies and control over our emotions. Think about when we turn to comfort food, when there's an emotional gap to fill. Think about how we eat when we are stressed because you know why? Eating feels good. We like how it makes us feel. We like how it gives us a sense of control because then things feel better and then we can control how we feel. Psychologists tell us that often people who experience trauma, especially women who have experienced sexual abuse, will often seek control through food as well because restricting food is a way of gaining control over what goes in our bodies, especially when there is a lack of control in other places and times. We believe that food gives us a sense of control in a world that feels out of control. And what's more, when it comes to food, we like how there's a really clear line of good and bad that's something that we want from our religion. We want that from our faith, right? We, we like the idea that we can determine what's good and what's bad because we live in this really confusing world where it all kind of blurs together and we can't always make sense of it. But with food, we can. You can look at and smell and taste a piece of fish. And when you do that, you know this is a good piece of fish or this is a bad piece of fish. So when we make judgments about food being good or bad, we wonder then, does that mean we have the ability to judge in general what is good and what is bad? And if we do, then does that mean we can assure ourselves that we are good? With food, there is order and security and control. And so we spend all this time and energy controlling our food because we think that somehow that will validate us. It will make us better. Surely we will look better or feel better. We'll just be better. But more often, more and more often, what we find to be true is that we need more and more of whatever that control is. And so we eat more or we restrict more or we cut out something else or we, we drive through the fast food more because it, it doesn't satisfy as much as we were hoping this time. And so we go for more. And so often we find that we try to control something, but in the end, that very thing controls us. Our passage in 1 Corinthians, where Paul is telling us about this question about food and its role in the life of the the Corinthians, it's actually just the beginning of a whole section of Paul talking about food and drink and its role in the community. 
Paul continues throughout all of these chapters in 1 Corinthians talking about the relationship with God and the relationship, moreover, that people have with others because of their relationship with God. And he says over and over again, don't let food and drink get in the way of these relationships that you have with God and with one another. Matter of fact, he says, whatever you do, whether you are eating or whether you are drinking, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. For our attention is not to be on the food, but on the one who created us, the one who actually sustains us. But it's kind of like Paul knew that the Corinthians, just like us, we need more. We need to know what does this look like? How do we live this out? How do we not bow down to the idol of food and the allure of control that it gives us? So Paul says, when we get to chapter 11, Paul says, let me just tell you, let me tell you about Jesus, who by the way, he points out, Jesus loved food. But more importantly, Jesus loved to eat with the ones he loved. When we read about Jesus eating, we read about him drinking wine with his friends or having a fish fry with his guys or dining with the people in the community who needed to be loved. And then Paul reminds us that here, in the midst of the worst night of Jesus's life, the night that he would be betrayed unto death itself, that what he chose to do that night was to gather together with his friends and eat. And they eat dinner. And while they're eating dinner, Jesus says to them, y'all eat. But not for the sake of this food. For the food will not ultimately sustain you. Don't eat for the sake of this food. But eat for the sake of our relationship together. And every time you do this, Jesus says, remember me. And when we do this, when we eat and when we drink and when we do it all in the name of the glory of God, we are honoring our most valuable hope, declaring our most valuable relationship, declaring that even though we would love to have some control through the food that we don't, but God, God is still in control and that even on that night when it felt like life was unraveling and completely falling apart, that even then God was still in control and it was at that table that Jesus reminded us of that. And friends, we will declare that until Jesus comes again and he will come again. Let's pray. Holy God, we give you thanks for this day. Thanks for the gifts that you have given us of food and drink. Lord, we pray that this would be a way that in our, our eating and our drinking, that it would be a way that we are drawn closer to you. And because we are drawn closer to you, Lord, that we will be drawn closer to one another into the community that you desire for us to be. In your holy name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for listening to the RPC Sermon Series podcast. If you'd like more info about Roswell Presbyterian Church, check out our website at roswellpres.org.